Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 223, and our guest is Brian Litz. If you've done any reading or research on long-range shooting or ballistics for such shooting, you've heard of Brian, you've read his work, even if you don't know it. He's affected the industry and has been a resource that has really changed what we know about external ballistics and long-range shooting today. Whether you're a long-range shooter or not, if you're simply a hunter that heads into the field with a rifle, you can learn from today's episode. This is a great example of the episodes that Steve and I personally love because we are with you learning from our guest. And this is such a jam-packed episode. Can't wait to share it with you. If you dive into this episode and want to learn more, make sure that you go check out nobsbc.com. This is a great resource from Burger Bullets, where they have started to discuss the topic of ballistic coefficients that we're discussing with Brian today, and they have articles published and a lot more coming at that website. So if what you hear today interests you and you want to learn more, make sure and visit that resource because there's a good amount of information posted there now and a lot more to come as well. Another great resource at the Burger Bullets website is their twist rate calculator, as well as their ballistics calculator, which are resources that we mentioned later in this episode, but just want to make you guys aware of as well. You know, more than a company just offering a product, Burger Bullets is offering you the information that you need to become a better shooter, and we are all about that. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into the Hunt Back Country podcast. If you're new, you can find more information at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You can find this show in all the major podcast directories by searching Hunt Backcountry, and you can get in contact with us directly by emailing podcast at exomountaingear.com. Thanks for tuning in again. Let's dive into this conversation with Brian Litz. Brian, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. How are you this morning? Doing good. Good, man. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Steve, I'm uh, excited to dive into this one with Brian and kind of understand ballistics and ballistic coefficient and kind of, you know, it's one of those things where that number on the box of bullets or box of ammunition, um, kind of know what it means, but I wanted to take a deep dive and understand what BC is uh, and take a look at that in a more detailed level. Yeah, yeah, me as well. It's... um it's since we've been you know talking about rifles more and more and shooting and and i've got the you know the apps on my phone and plugging in different bullet configurations and and that bc number has a dramatic impact um you know especially once you start getting out there at 500 plus yards and it it is shocking to me how how much different wind drift and drop you can be talking about with different bc numbers so excited to dig into this further and understand it because i when i you know i think i have a rough understanding of it but uh, there's got to be a lot more going on there. So yeah. Well, Brian, for you, just to start with uh, an intro, I'm, I'm sure many guys in the audience have heard of you. Some haven't. Most of the guys who haven't heard of you have probably benefited from some of your work without realizing it. I mean, it can be kind of said you literally wrote the book on applying the science of ballistics to shooting in a lot of ways. Um, go ahead and give us kind of like a, a brief background of your education and experience and kind of what led you to you know, where you are in terms of 
ballistics and shooting and kind of why you're the guy we're talking to have this conversation with today. Yep. Okay. So, um, I've had an interest in shooting ever since I can remember, um, you know, shooting pellet rifles and things, uh, from when I was a kid, even slingshots and archery. Um, you know, I, I knew from a young age that I wanted to be in the field of ballistics. Um, the closest thing that I could find in college that related to that was aerospace engineering. So that's what I went to school for. Uh, by then I was already in shooting long range competitions, uh, rifle matches, you know, 300, 600,000 yard stuff. And so, you know, learned a lot about aerodynamics in college, but the field of ballistics really isn't that, you know, there's not a lot of ballisticians out there. So when I, graduated college, you know, I applied to the bullet companies, but hadn't really made a reputation for myself. No one was hiring at that time. So um, I got a job with the Air Force as a uh, civilian contractor doing modeling and simulation of air-to-air missiles. So I did that for six years while, um, you know, continuing to learn a lot more about aerodynamics and, um, you know, modeling trajectories of guided munitions and at the same time, still continuing to compete in long range matches and starting to build a reputation, um, you know, in the online forums for, you know, being a source of information where, you know, there's a lot of really experienced long range shooters out there who are not necessarily engineers. And there's a lot of engineers that don't have, that can't really bridge the gap to shooting. So I think that's really what my unique opportunity was, was being someone who has spent a large, you know, a lot of their summer in the pits, pulling targets with shooters, you know, going through all the learning processes that shooters are encountered with. And so I kind of, I understood and really identified with the problems of long range shooting firsthand as a competitor, but then also having the engineering background in aerospace to be able to say, you know, this, this, this doesn't have to be all voodoo, you know, this doesn't have to be black magic. There's solutions and understandings of a lot of this stuff that competitors wonder about that knowledge is all, a lot of it was generated and published, but it's published in dusty old textbooks in the libraries, you know, from like world war two and stuff when there was a lot of R and D on aeroballistics. So there, what was really needed is somebody to bridge the gap between what was known about ballistics by the scientists and what shooters needed to know to practically apply and start hitting targets at long range. So that's kind of where, that's kind of the gap that I aim to fill. Um, when I started publishing books, that was kind of the point of my first book. A lot of the material in that book is, it's not new or novel per se, but it was the first time that it was explained in layman's terms, you know, Coriolis effect and spin drift are pretty um, deep subjects. And whenever you research them, a lot of times the references are not easy to really digest. But what I did is kind of make that accessible to average long range shooters. And then um, to segue into the discussion about ballistic coefficients, one of the problems that pervaded long range shooting during the time I was learning it was that ballistic coefficients were they were not really reliable. Like all of the manufacturers provided their own numbers and some of them were quite accurate. Others were um, either, you know, deliberately inflated for marketing reasons or just that the company had no good way of measuring it. So for various different reasons, those BC numbers that 
you know, we recognize are so important for long range shooting, they just weren't available. So um, I developed a way to measure ballistic coefficients over long range through live fire and time of flight measurement. And all of those are incredibly accurate BCs and are published in that first book as well. So that, that first book, Applied Ballistics for Long Range Shooting, is now in its third edition. And it's really, that was really my sort of contribution and introduction into the, um, you know, the business side of, of the firearms industry, where I made a contribution to, you know, bridge that gap, as well as provide some data that was useful to shooters. And it's all kind of come from there for me. Is there a standard for measuring BC now from company to company? Um, where um, everyone's consistent. It seems to me like I've picked up a few times where a company will also just update their BC numbers of a bullet or, uh, it just seems inconsistent. Yeah. All the manufacturers still have different ways of doing it, but I would say they've all definitely come a long way in the last 10 years or so. Um, it, you know, back, go back 10 years The you know, the standard, when you ask about standards, um, there's a couple standards in common use now. Back then, there was only one. The G1 standard is pretty much all the numbers that you saw. Uh, one of the things I did in that first book was introduce the G7 standard. I didn't introduce it. it, it like I said, these things existed. I just kind of brought it to the surface for use. So the G7 standard is a lot more appropriate for modern long-range bullets. And so, you know, I measured and presented a lot of my data in terms of the G7 standard. Well, now a lot of the bullet companies also offer G7 referenced BCs. So, but that's that's just the the technical standard. I think what you were asking is, is there a standard distance or velocity or testing protocol? Yeah. And there there really isn't across the industry. Um, the numbers that we measure uh, at Applied Ballistics with Doppler radar now, all of our BCs are averaged from 3,000 to 1,500 feet per second. So that's kind of our standard that you know all of our data is, you know, done that way. But you know, different other different bullet companies may have they may choose a different velocity band to do theirs in like well burger for example we do we have the same process for burger bullets where all of those bcs are averages from 3000 to 1500 um you know but other companies you might see a different velocity window so very very much could be the case that there's still some marketing in, the, in those numbers or maybe they inflate them a little bit yeah yeah, yeah. so that's kind of the when I say the G7 standard is more appropriate for modern long-range bullets, what I mean technically by more appropriate is that it's not as subject to the speed that you measure it at. So a, mm. G1, a G1 BC is almost always going to be a higher number at a higher velocity. And then as the bullet slows down, that G1 number gets lower and lower. Well, that's just because of how our bullets compare to that G1 standard. But because our modern bullets compare more closely to the G7 standard, there's much less migration of that BC as the bullet goes from fast to slow. So that if you're using a G7 BC, you have less leeway in where you're going to say, like, if I was, you know, just in the marketing department of a bullet company and the ballistician said, well, the G1 could be anywhere from 0.6 
down to 0.5, depending on what speed you measure it at. Well, what speed do you think the marketing department's going to want to cite the BC? It's going to be high speed. Right. Um, And so it compares well in the market. Well, the problem with that is if you only list the BC that's valid for high speed, that's not an accurate representation of the bullet's true performance over long range, because even though it might be 100% valid at the muzzle, if you're going to predict an accurate trajectory using ballistic software, you need an average BC for that long range, not one that just represents the high end or the low end, but you want mm. some kind of in the middle. Mm. Oh, makes perfect sense. Just to like lay a foundation of, you know, as we're diving into BC and what that is, I want to bring it back to kind of making sure we all understand what we're talking about when we talk about BC and what the quote unquote benefit is, especially for hunters. I I think there's a lot of guys out there who just see a BC number and they're just going to hire is better, but they don't necessarily even know why it's better. They don't know what they're getting with BC and what the effects of that is. As you were talking about, Steve, it can have a massive impact downrange, but this is very non-scientific, Brian. This is like layman's terms explanation in my words. So I want to like say it, then please correct me. But essentially it's, you know, from the word coefficient, we're talking about the efficiency of a bullet. We're talking about how, um, how it flies through the air and resists, let's call it drag. And essentially a higher BC bullet, all else being equal, you take two bullets of the same weight fired from theoretical same rifle. When they leave the muzzle, they're traveling the same speed to begin with at the muzzle. The higher BC bullet's just going to retain a higher velocity downrange because it's retaining a higher velocity. It's also going to have theoretically more energy. Well, not theoretically, actually more energy than upon impact because it's moving faster. Um, it's also going to experience less wind drift downrange again, cause it's, it's moving faster. It's spending less time going from point A to point B there. It's affected by wind less. So you're going to have more efficient, uh, performance in terms of resisting wind drift. And obviously along with, um, that higher velocity, you're going to experience less drop over that time. Is that a fair, like, is that a good summary of BC is in terms of what at least hunters need to know of what's happening between muzzle and target? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit on a lot of the performance metrics that shooters care about and that are directly influenced by ballistic coefficients. So to get at like the fundamental first principle of it, what BC is most directly defined as is the ability of the projectile to retain velocity. And so the higher the BC, the better it retains velocity. Now, All of those other ballistic performance measures, drop, wind drift, um, energy, all of those things are improved when the projectile retains velocity better. Um, So that's kind of velocity retention is the primary effect of BC, and then everything else good comes from that. Now, there's a couple, um, let's say, caveats or other interesting things to be aware of, like... um, energy, for example, we say, well, a higher velocity is higher energy. Well, when you're looking at energy, you also have the weight of the bullet. Weight is weight influences BC, but it's also has a separate meaning in terms of energy. So faster, faster doesn't always mean higher energy as a one-to-one thing because of weight considerations. And another thing to keep in mind when you're comparing uh, the BCs of bullets is, again, it has to do with the weight and the, the effect of that weight on your muzzle velocity. 
So let's say you've got two bullets you're looking at, you know, a 30 cal 200 grain and a 30 cal 220 grain. Okay, those bullets are 20 grains different. That's about 10% different in bullet weight. Now, if the shape of the bullets is the same, then the bullet that's 10% heavier will have a 10% higher BC. But you can't just look at it that way. That's not the whole story because in reality, whenever you're selecting between those two bullets to shoot out of the same cartridge, that heavier bullet is going to have a lower muzzle velocity when you load it to the same pressure as compared to the light one. So there's kind of a trade-off whenever you're looking at BC and muzzle velocity. You know, a heavier bullet will have a higher BC, but it'll also have a lower muzzle velocity. And that's part of the performance trade-off that you have to look at. You hit on something there um, that I wanted to talk about, and that was the the relationship essentially between weight and BC. And you very specifically mentioned if the two had the same shape. So I'm just curious. You know, I've I've looked at bullets in the past. You look at say two bullets of the same design or from the same line, and the the one that's heavier is going to have a better BC. How does weight affect BC? in terms of just the weight itself, but then also you mentioned it has to do with shape. Is the heavier bullet generally higher BC because the shape or because the weight, or is it a combination of both? I'm not even, I just have always been curious about that. Why is it as you typically look at a heavier bullet, you can get a higher BC? Yep. Well, so go back to the, the definition of it is how well the bullet retains velocity. So imagine you've got a, a ping pong ball and a golf ball. Okay. And they're roughly the same shape. Imagine they're exactly the same size. They're both round and you chuck them both as hard as you can. You know, which one would you expect to go farther? You know, obviously the golf ball is going to travel farther because it doesn't immediately lose all of its velocity. And that's basically the only difference between them is the weight. So the weight of the golf ball is is what makes it penetrate the air better, makes it retain velocity better and and travel farther than the ping pong ball. And that's an example that I use just to kind of relate to the common sense of everybody that's ever thrown anything that's light or heavy. Um, And so it's the same with bullets. Your your insight may not transfer to bullets because when you're holding a, a 150 and a 168 grain bullet in your hand, it does, you may not relate that to a golf ball versus a ping pong ball, but it's the same kind of thing going on. They're the same basic shape, the same caliber. And so the heavier one is going to have higher performance for the same reason that a golf ball goes further when you throw it than a, a ping pong ball. That makes sense. I need, I need simple analogies like that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, out of all those benefits we talked about, as you said, BC is, you know, it's retained velocity, essentially, which, again, is going to give you more energy if we're talking the same way to bullet. Um, it can have uh, an effect on even something that I didn't think about initially, but because it's retaining velocity, and then you look at, say, for hunting bullets, minimum recommended um, velocity for performance of bullet, whether that's expansion, fragmentation, what have you, there's, there's a minimum there. So essentially a higher BC bullet is going to, in a way, have a, 
a longer effective range. You know, again, all other things being equal, but if you take, okay, this bullet needs a minimum of, say, 1,600 feet per second upon impact to perform or expand as desired. Theoretically, if we can increase the BC, it's going to retain velocity a longer distance. Therefore, your your 1,600 foot per second minimum is going to be at a further range in a that bullet then, because it has a higher BC, more retained energy, is going to have a longer effective range. Is that a fair point? Oh, yeah. It's not only fair. That's one of the main points that I always uh, get to when talking about BCs with hunters is I'm not sure I could explain it any better myself that every measure of terminal bullet performance is enhanced at a higher velocity. So whether you're talking about a low velocity threshold, like 1600 feet a second, and for a high BC bullet, that might correspond to 900 yards instead of 700 yards. Um, so you're talking about your max effective range. But even if you look inside of that, you're like, okay, I'm going to take a shot at a you know 500-yard game, which is technically within the range of both. You're not up against the minimum at that point. Well, the higher BC bullet is still going to hit harder and have more effect on a 500 yard target than a lower BC bullet will at that, you know, anywhere within the performance envelope, the performance will be increased at a given range for a higher BC bullet. And then wind drift is, I think, a huge one. I, I, I feel like a lot of hunters, as they hear BC, they're just thinking it has to do with distance. And some hunters are going to say, well, I'm not shooting at long distances, therefore BC doesn't matter. But I'm really intrigued, especially on the wind drift um, benefits of that as in hunting, you can't get around conditions. Like you, you can't say, okay, I mean, you can make a judgment call on whether a shot's ethical, whether you're comfortable, et cetera, but you can't control wind. You're hunting when you're hunting. And sometimes you're going to have to deal with wind in a shot. And so a higher BC bullet is going to drift less and wind the lower BC bullet. Is that only an effect of retained velocity because it's getting from point A to point B quicker and therefore it has less time to be affected by wind? Or is there some other, I don't, don't mean to use this as a scientific term because it may be wrong, aerodynamic benefit to a bullet with higher BC because of its shape or what have you resists wind better? Or is it simply a matter of it's moving faster from point A to point B? Yeah, so this is this is an important one to talk about because like you said, wind is pervasive. It affects all aspects of long range shooting, even medium range shooting, depending on your target size. And so it's important to like have a full conversation about this. So um, remember when I was talking about the trade-off of a higher BC bullet is usually that it's heavier and has a lower muzzle velocity. And that's the trade-off that you look at. So you're not if a bullet's 10% heavier and has a 10% higher BC, you're not necessarily getting a full 10% higher performance out of it because you got to subtract some for the lower muzzle velocity. So even though the bullet is retaining its velocity better because it had a depressed muzzle velocity because it's heavier, it, it may or may not have a shorter overall time of flight to the target. Um, but if you're talking higher BC bullets that are the same shape as the lighter lower BC bullets, you're always going to have a, an advantage in lower wind deflection from a higher BC bullet. And it's because that wind deflection, this is sort of a common myth, the wind deflection is not directly proportional to the actual time of flight to the target. 
it's proportional to what we call lag time. And this will get a little technical, but I think it'll, it'll make sense. So lag time is mathematically, it's the difference between your actual time of flight to the target and what we call the vacuum time of flight. The vacuum time of flight is how long it would take your bullet to get to the target if there was no air resistance. In other words, if the bullet had, a, had an infinite ballistic coefficient and didn't slow down at all. So for example, on a thousand yard shot, if you have a 3000 foot per second muzzle velocity and you have a thousand yard target, the vacuum time of flight in that example is one second exactly because 3000 feet, you know, a thousand yards is 3000 feet and 3000 feet per second, you would get there in one second if the bullet didn't slow down at all. But in reality, you know, whenever you introduce air drag and you talk the actual time of flight to a thousand yard target, it's closer to say 1.6 seconds. So the difference between your actual 1.6 second time of flight and that theoretical one second vacuum time of flight, that 0.6 second difference, that is the lag time. And that lag time is what is directly proportional to wind deflection. So that's where I said it's tricky because it's possible to have a longer total time of flight because you had a slower muzzle velocity. But whenever you do the math and look at the lag time, you might have less lag time for a higher BC bullet that has a longer overall time of flight. So it's it's a shortcut I think that a lot of shooters take is they'll they'll just look at the time of flight in a ballistics program and if it's a shorter time of flight, they'll think it necessarily has less wind deflection because the bullet's not exposed to the wind as long. And that's not all there is to it. It's a little more complicated. Um, but the the takeaway from all this is that in the end, if you're shooting a higher BC bullet, even if it's at a lower muzzle velocity and has a l slightly longer overall time of flight to the target, it's generally going to have less wind deflection than a lighter bullet because the lag time is less. I'm processing. I'm digesting, yeah. but I think I have it. <laughs> I like some, it. Some some of this stuff is really much uh, is much better conveyed with graphics. Like if I had a yeah. dry erase board or right. could like refer you to some charts in my books, I've got bar charts where you know the full height of the bar is the overall time of flight, and then there's like a gray section that's the vacuum time of flight, and then the black section is the vacuum time of flight. And there's a different bar, like for 30 caliber bullets starting at 155 on the lightweight side and going up to 230 grains. And you can see how the bars get taller for the heavier bullets because the overall time of flight is greater, but the lag time portion gets compressed to smaller proportions as you go up to the heavier bullets. So you can kind of see it visually a lot better than you can process it. That's good. This is a, a big, unfair, I think, question, but I'm curious to kind of like hear your take or at least to have us talk through this a little bit and to think through it. We talk about these benefits of BC and we've talked about energy and wind drift and effective range and all that. At what point does that begin to matter for hunters? You know, there's there's guys all over the map of some guys never shoot beyond 200. Some guys are never shooting beyond 400. And obviously distances have only extended and extended in, in terms of long range hunting in years. And there's guys taking much, much further shots. And I'm not wanting to get into a conversation about 
you know, ethics or anything in that nature. I'm just kind of curious of if a guy's shooting at 200, does the, should he be considering the BC of his bullet choice? Yes or no, or maybe it's 400. And again, I know there's no, like, here's where it matters, but I'm just curious, like helping a hunter think through that. What are some of your thoughts? Yeah, so it's it, you're right. It is not a black and white answer, um, but there is a pretty straightforward way to go about considering that for every individual scenario. Um, and basically, what you want to look for is where those ballistic effects start to be uh, large in comparison to your target size. So, like if you've got a you know a deer size animal at you know 200 yards, what's what's the commonly considered vital zone of a white-tailed deer is it like 10 inches eight inches what is there something that's normally used yeah probably for deer whether white-tailed mule deer it's going to be closer to eight i would say okay so consider that your vital zone this is i'm giving you like the technical steps to approach this so if it's eight inches and at 200 yards you know that your gun can shoot um you know two to four inch group and the wind deflection at even of even a high wind is only a couple inches. Basically, when you add up all of the ballistic effects, there's nothing that will deflect your bullet outside the vital zone of the animal. Then you can pretty much neglect a lot of ballistic things, right? You probably have to hold a little higher for drop unless you zeroed at 200. But the idea is that your group is going to be inside the vital zone without really getting into sophisticated ballistic calculation. Now, if you take that same size vital zone, that same eight inch target and put it at twice the distance, now that's going to challenge your ability to hit it just based on the raw group size of your, you know, of your rifle to begin with. But then now you've also got an amount of drop that is several times the size of your vital zone. And you can have wind deflection that several times the size of your vital zone. So you start to, it starts to become important, the site corrections that you have to make to center your group in that vital zone. And at every, at every step of increasing distance, the target size stays the same. It's the same eight inches, but it represents a smaller angular target. You know, it's, Mm-hmm. Oh, four minutes of angle at 200 yards. It's two minutes of angle at 400 yards. It's half a minute of angle at 800 yards. So not only is it getting further away and you have more variables coming into play, but it's also effectively getting smaller in terms of a uh, harder to hit target. So, I mean, I would say the answer to that question is it really depends on how, the, how your target size relates to the ballistic variables involved. You know, in ELR competition, we shoot at 36 inch plates, you know, a hit anywhere on that 36 inch three foot square is, you know, it's a hit, it's hit or miss. Well, we start those competitions at 1500 yards. And so those targets are pretty small at that distance, Um, you know, just over still just over two minutes of angle. But this we use the same size targets all the way out to two miles where now that target is just about one minute is smaller than one minute of angle. And we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet of drop and, you know, dozens and dozens of feet of wind deflection. You, you even get into several feet of Coriolis and spin drift. So 
it's basically impossible to hit those targets unless you're accounting for all of the detailed variables in a very refined way. Um, so it really, I would say the further out you get, the more important the things are just because of how much the magnitude of your drop in your drift is going to put your group way off target unless you correct for it accurately. I like it. That's, that's really helpful to think through. Um, and as you mentioned, it, Basically, essentially, if you do some homework, like you can look at those numbers, you can use some data, you can use some science, use ballistics charts to kind of make that um, make that decision for yourself and to see what those differences are. Say even you're, you know, say you're comparing two different bullet choices, you can look at the range and see what the performance in terms of, say, wind drift and an eight mile an hour wind is going to be and what that means for your vital zone. So I really like that. That's super helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You can pull up like let's say everybody has a skill set in reading wind. And if you pull up your thousand yard ballistics and you see that, you know, a 10 mile an hour crosswind moves me 60 inches at a thousand yards. Well, that means every mile an hour is six inches. So if you're trying to hit the center, let's say you have a 12 inch vital zone, just to make these numbers easy. If you have a 12 inch vital zone, that's essentially plus or minus one mile an hour of wind deflection if everything else is perfect, like if your group was, if your shot is perfectly centered, you have plus or minus six inches of wind to play with. Now, in reality, your your rifle in field conditions is maybe shooting a 12 or a 10 inch group, you know, just inherently with no wind. Now you got, if you consider that 10 inch group in a 12 inch vital zone, you have next to zero room for error on wind deflection. You know, there's only an inch on either side around your group before you're outside the vital zone. So things like that can really put into perspective um, how important it is, um, you know, to get those, that wind uncertainty down. So to practice your wind reading, you know, there's different approaches. A lot of, you know, some shooters that are more technically minded will try to address those wind uncertainty problems with higher ballistics, higher performance, like the biggest Magnum shooting the highest BC bullets as fast as they can to absorb all the uncertainty that they have to deal with in the field. And that's certainly a valid approach as long as you don't go too far and start having problems from high performance. Um, but another way I think a, a well-balanced approach would be both of these things is to spend time in the field and on the range, learning to minimize your wind uncertainty. You know, if you're, if you're only ever trying to make wind calls when you're hunting you're going to be very unpracticed at it. You know, you don't get much feedback and learning, but if you go and you shoot long range frequently, especially in the environments that you'll be hunting in and you shoot, you see your impact, you make an adjustment, you basically teach yourself what an eight mile an hour, four o'clock wind looks like in the environment that you're going to need to make hunting shots in, then you can really minimize that uncertainty. Let's say if you're not practiced, you might only be able to call wind within three or four miles an hour. And, you know, that's pretty bad in terms of the distance that you can hit animals in a windy condition. But if you practice, even with the same rifle, let's say you don't change anything, you have a standard performance rifle, but you practice and you bring your wind uncertainty down from three or four miles an hour to one or two miles an hour. Well, then you've effectively doubled the range that you can that you can make impacts in the wind just through lowering that uncertainty, making better wind calls. So, you know, very few things when it comes to, 
you know, hitting targets are done in a bubble. You know, you don't just overcome wind with high ballistic performance. You don't just overcome wind with practice. It's sort of a combination of all these things that add up to continue increasing your range that you can have confidence in hitting targets. We talked earlier about kind of BC um, being dynamic. It changes over time. And you were saying that's like, at least for you guys and um, for the burger numbers, it's this average of what is BC at 3000 feet per second? What is it at 1500 feet per second? So BC is affected by, you know, when it's measured in terms of velocity and then I know that BC can be even from environmental variables, um, density, altitude type stuff that can have an effect on BC. What are the, some of the other, can the, can variations in bullet, like say two bullets that came off the same line, um, that have the same design, they are the same bullet, but just variances in production. Um, can they have a actual, um, effectual difference in BC? Like what are some of the inconsistencies in BC? Right. So that, that's a good question. That's a big part of our um, awareness sort of thing that we're doing now, because it's until we started shooting a lot with Doppler radar, we weren't even aware of how important a problem this was. Uh, but I'll come back to that. I first want to go back and touch on something you said about the atmosphere and density altitude affecting BC. Um, that That's a common way to talk about it because it appears as though when you're in thinner air that you have a higher BC bullet because all of those things about velocity retention and, you know, less drop, less wind deflection, they go hand in hand. But to be technically accurate about it, the BC of your bullet doesn't change at all based on the atmosphere that you're in. What changes is the atmosphere that you're in, and it has an effect on your bullet that's similar to having a different BC. So, if you, if you go into an environment that has 10% thinner air, that will make it look like your BC is 10% higher, but the, I guess, technical reality is your BC is the same, and the reason that your ballistics program models better performance and why you actually see better performance <clears throat> is just because you're in thinner air. So, I get it. Yeah, because you're, you're having higher velocity because of the environment, not because of an actual change in BC. Right. Yeah. The bullet is the bullet. It's the same bullet that you shoot. The difference is the atmosphere. So it's not the BC that changes, it's the air density. So, yeah. So setting that aside, so back to the variation side, um, there's a there's a number of things that will cause a BC to have variation through its flight. And there's, there's a couple different types of variation to talk about here. One is the variation in the BC from high speed to low speed. Okay, and that's something that comes about because of how the drag of the actual bullet matches its standard. Um, and pretty much every bullet is going to have some of that variation. It just depends on how well it matches the standard. Um, you know, and that's something that is covered in books and articles a lot, showing all the ways that G7 is a better match than G1. Um, another way that you can have variation in a long term, long range trajectory is if if the bullet starts to encounter some instability especially as it slows down into the transonic range um the at that speed when you get close to mach one things get really hard for stability and i won't go into all the aerodynamics of it but 
it, the stability of the bullet that was perfectly comfortably stable flying from the muzzle all the way out can start to become unstable and start to fly with some pitching and yawing angles. And that induces extra drag beyond what it flew <clears throat> beyond with what it flew with up until then. So that could cause the effective BC of your bullet to vary from what the BC would model it as. Um, so those are two, like I would say, systematic types of BC variability to where your actual bullet might vary from the model of the ballistic coefficient. But the other category of variation that you brought up as well is the shot-to-shot -shot variation. Um, and we can think of it very similar to muzzle velocity variation, where you might have an average muzzle velocity of 3,000 feet per second, and that's what you're going to model in your ballistic software as an input. But the reality is that any given shot is going to be some velocity around 3,000. You know, you might have 2,990, 2,998, 3,013, 3,000 on the nose. The point is there's variability and it has an average. Well, BC is the same way. If your BC is, let's say you have a G7 BC of 0.355, that doesn't mean every shot is exactly 0.355. You'll have, you know, shots that are 351, some that are 358. So they just kind of scatter around there. And in a similar way that you have a standard deviation on your muzzle velocity, you also have a standard deviation on your BC. Now, bullets that are well-made and well-designed, well-stabilized, will have a very consistent BC from shot to shot. They'll have a low standard deviation on the BC. And when you think about what the BC is, what that characteristic affects how the bullet retains velocity and drops, if you imagine a, a, a group of bullets that are fired into a group at long range, and there's a very high degree of BC variation in that group, that group is going to string out very tall vertically. Even if your muzzle velocities are all very consistent, let's say the first shot has a higher than average BC, well, it's going to hit higher. And somewhere in the string, you have a shot that has a lower than average BC, well, that shot will hit lower. And the more variation there is in the BC, the taller your group will get. And the worse that will get as you go further out in distance, because that BC has a cumulative effect. The further it flies, the more impact it has on its trajectory because it builds up as, as the bullet flies. So what you want, obviously, are bullets that are well-made and consistently made with low standard deviations on the shot-to-shot -shot BC so that you have a very predictable trajectory and your shot group stays tight even at long range. So as a rule of thumb, um, as a rule of thumb, you want less than 1% of standard deviation on your BC. So we talk about it in percents because BCs, you know, they can be high or low and you, so you can't use an absolute number, but let's say a bullet that is, has a G7 BC of 0.3 something, you wouldn't want your standard deviation on that BC to be any more than 0 0.003. If it is, it's more than 1%. And that's when you're going to start seeing that vertical shot stringing at long range. Now, again, this isn't a black and white thing. You'll see that vertical shot stringing start, you know, at closer range, but it really doesn't manifest to a problem until you get further out there. So it's kind of a gray area, but we just use 1% as a rule of thumb. 
because most shooting that's done within the supersonic range, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred, it's fifteen hundred yards for some cartridges. If your BC variation is under one percent, then that's probably not going to be the reason you're missing your targets at those distances. Uh, it's it's going to be that that amount of error is in the noise. But if it gets over one percent, then you're going to start missing targets high and low because of that. Is that purely the BC variability? There is purely just the manufacturing process. Um, it can be a, it can be a few things. Um, obviously, if the bullets aren't all the same shape yeah. um, coming off the production line, if some of them have you know wide tips or narrow tips or they, you know anything that's manufactured is not a literal hundred percent geometric copy. So it's really about how much variation you have in the dimensions. And you know some of your serious competition shooters will sort their bullets based on different things. You know overall length or base to ojive and and the effort there is to try to get bullets that are going to all fly with the same bc and shoot into a small group um but um dimensional variation is not the only possible way to have bc variation some bullets that are very very close to the same dimensions can still have a high degree of bc variation due to stability related problems in the design um, this is this is actually a really common problem with uh, solid bullets. So the lathe turned, you know, solid copper bullets that we use a lot in ELR shooting, um, you know, they're they're not still not perfect copies of each other, but they are much more consistent in dimensions than bullets that come off a press that are swaged with lead cores. And even though they are very very consistent dimensionally because they're CNC machined they can have incredibly high variation in their BCs from shot to shot because of some of the um, stability problems inherent in the design of those solid bullets. So, you know, one, one shot comes out, it's fully stable and another bullet comes out and because it's the design is kind of on the edge of stable, it might, it might have a little bit of more pitching and yawing than the last shot. So it's BC is lower. And by the time you've shot a group, your BCs are kind of scattered way out. Um, so there's a couple of different ways that you can get the BC variation. Only one of them is manufacturing tolerances. And the other one is the actual design of the bullet itself. If it's, if it's got a high degree of inherent stability, mm-hmm. then if they're the same shape, then they're going to fly with very consistent BCs. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, and some bullets, the ones that are most influenced by stability, a lot of times they'll fly just fine be very consistent for supersonic speeds, but then when they slow down to transonic, that's where you'll start to see the BC start to really vary because that's where the stability problem is the worst. Um, if their dimensional variation is causing the, um, the high BC variation, then you'll see that that pervades through from the muzzle out. You know, if the, if the nose or the tip are different shapes, there'll be different BCs from the muzzle all the way. Yeah, I'm glad you hit on stability. That's one of the things I wanted to mention, not in terms of the design of the bullet and its stability per se, but for our listeners and looking at bullet selection and maybe considering now, okay, I want, I want to look for a newer bullet, a higher BC, what have you. It's important to look at what your rifle is and particularly like Berger has a great resource on a twist rate calculator and how the twist rate, twist rate of your barrel 
is going to stabilize a particular bullet, you know, from their line, for example. So I just want to make sure that that was clear and that guys knew that that was a variable to look at was looking at twist rate, looking at your rifle and pairing that with your bullet selection to make sure that there's essentially a a quote unquote proper match there. You're not going to run into stability issues. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because it's, it's more important now these days that we have a lot more long bullets that are, you know, heavy and long for their caliber. Um, Twist rates are getting faster to accommodate for that, but there's still a lot of rifles being made, you know, factory guns that maybe don't have a fast enough twist rate to stabilize every bullet that's sold for in that caliber. And unfortunately, as a manufacturer, it's very difficult to um, decide how to advise on recommended twist rate because it depends. The stability that you get from a bullet in a twist, you know, a certain twist barrel depends on how fast you're shooting it and what your altitude effects are and your air temperature effects. So if we recommend, let's say, a one in nine twist for some bullet because that works in nominal conditions, but you're shooting your bullet in, let's say, worst case scenario, which would be a slower muzzle velocity in really cold air close to sea level, well, that nine twist may not fully stabilize the bullet for you. Um, And so if we were to be very conservative, though, on our recommended twist rates, we'd say, okay, that bullet needs an eight twist. And we print that on the box just so that everybody in every worst case scenario is covered. Well, with that, well, then you've made the problem that the majority of shooters who are going to fire that bullet in nominal conditions think that it won't work for them now because we've put an eight twist on and they have a nine twist and they'll think it won't work, even though it would work just fine. So it's a, it's a really hard, it's really hard to pick one number to put on the box to recommend. So that's where that online stability calculator, we encourage people all the time to go look at that because it lets you select the bullet and your twist rate and also input your altitude and temperature and muzzle velocity, all those other things that affect it. And it'll recommend what twist rate, or if it'll tell you if the bullet is stable for you in the conditions that you're going to shoot it in. And so you get more of like a custom recommendation from that site for the proper twist rate. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of people are under twisting their bullets and don't realize it because if you have marginal stability from the muzzle with a bullet, it's not necessarily obvious in anything that you would see, like at a hundred yards, they'll still shoot small groups. The holes will still look round if you're just marginally unstable. Um, but what the problem is, is that if your stability factor is under 1.5 over a long range trajectory, that reduces your BC. And if you're trying to hit targets at long distance based on ballistic solutions, you're going to miss because that marginal stability comes in and hurts the BC. Um, so that's why we have that twist calculator there. It'll tell you if you're getting the full stability or if it's marginal. Um, and you know, you could either select a shorter bullet for your rifle if it doesn't have a fast enough twist or if there's a long high bc bullet that you really want to shoot it'll tell you what twist you need to properly stabilize that bullet in your environment is there a downside to spinning a shorter bullet faster i mean not really no i mean that's that's one of the common myths that Uh, I think a lot of people believe that there's a sweet spot that, you know, you don't want to spin it too fast and you don't want to spin it too slow. Well, 
there are there are good reasons to not spin it too slow. Like I described, you'll, the BC yeah. will degrade. But if you spin a bullet too fast, nothing nothing bad really happens. Um, there's concerns about overstabilizing bullets, which isn't. I mean, that could, we could go into the conversation about what the myth is and where it comes from. But in reality, there until you get to the point where you're physically um, disintegrating the bullets from too fast of twist, which that takes just as one data point. We know that in a four twist 308, that'll disintegrate a conventional lead or lead core bullet at about 2,600 feet a second. Um, but a six twist, that same round is just fine. And then everything slower than six twist is fine. But most people aren't looking at four twists. You know, they're looking at, you know, going from nine to eight or eight to seven twist. And you're not going to have problems really disintegrating bullets at those twist rates. Um, you're just spinning them faster than they need to. And we've seen a lot of radar tracks that we've shot where, you know, we take the same ammo and shoot out of the, you know, new barrels, everything the same, except you've got like a seven, eight, and nine twist, shoot the same ammo out of all of them. And the seven twist makes the lowest drag for the whole flight of the bullet. The eight twist makes the next next highest drag. And then the nine twist is the highest drag. So you can see it in progressive steps where the drag reduces the faster you spin the bullet Mm. up until a point. And then it can't be any more stable than that. So it it stops. But the myth goes that overstabilizing a bullet would actually cause more drag and we could, I said, we could argue the academics of it, but the live fire measurements don't support that. They show, yeah. Opposite of a, an arrow. As we're doing all this, me being an archery guy, I really want a, a BC calculator for arrow. That would be freaking <laughs> yeah. awesome. I'd love to see that. Like, uh, yeah. Someone needs to, to put that together. I'm sure it wouldn't be that complicated. That's cool. Um, Brian, we're coming up on time. I got three, uh, three quick questions for you before we wrap up. Number one, if a guy's new to these concepts, maybe new to what we talked about of determining the effects of BC downrange and looking at that data, what's like a, a good ballistics app software resource to look at that he can just kind of plug in some numbers and look at? I know there's a ton out there, but what's a good starting point you would point somebody to? Yeah, as a starting point for someone new, there's a number of free calculators online. There's, you know, on the Burger Bullets website, there's a free ballistics calculator. Um, you know, it's enough to let you play with, get a lot of insight. It doesn't have a lot of the advanced kind of stuff like Coriolis and things like that. But as a first order sort of getting your feet wet, that's a free resource that that works very well for that. Uh, second question, you mentioned books and things like that. You have a company called Applied Ballistics. I think everything's available through there. But basically, if guys want to learn more, check out your books, see what else you're up to, what's the best place they can go? Yep, the Applied Ballistics website. We have a store that we sell the books from. And that you can also get them through Amazon and Midway and um, Brownell Sinclair. There's a lot of the places that sell, sell shooting books carry the Applied Ballistics books. Those are two softball questions. My final question I'm really curious about is is someone who's deep into the science and has been for many years, but then is also a shooter. Are there still things that you're like, 
I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. Like, are there variables or there effects as we talk about ballistics and data and we can determine certain things? Are there still things that, like, you're uncertain about or curious about, even though you've researched all this extensively? Oh, yeah. And that's the exciting stuff. I wouldn't still be doing this if there weren't still questions. And where we find those questions, I mean, you can always go further. If we get everything figured out at 1,000 yards, you know, we go to 1,500 and then if that gets too easy, we just eventually there's going to be a distance like right now we're into the ELR competitions where we've got targets out to two miles. And believe me, there, there's a lot of challenge in that. A lot of the things that come together nicely at one mile, um, you you shoot two miles and you've got questions, you know, why didn't it work or what's different or, you know, and with the Doppler radar that we have, you know, we've progressed from using ballistic coefficients represented by standards to measuring the actual drag of the bullets that we're shooting um, so that we don't have any of those inaccuracies related to BCs. But even, even then there are, you know, whenever you're looking at the drag on a bullet over a two mile flight, you know, you're talking six, seven, eight seconds time of flight, the small errors in ballistic drag modeling that are negligible at a mile are now going to cause you to miss a target at two miles. So we're looking at further refining the measurements that we're doing with the radar system at two miles. Um, a lot of the wind, oh my God, you want to talk about wind sensitivity. Guess how much you can miss the wind by and still hit a target at two miles. It's not much. <laughs> so that that's kind of to answer that question. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of important unsolved questions Within a thousand yards, I would say, if you're talking about a supersonic round, a center fire cartridge, all that stuff is pretty much well understood to where any of the mysteries remaining are less than one click in a scope. Um, but that's why we've gone into further range territory to find out what the constraints are in keeping us from reliably hitting targets now at two miles. And that's a, it's a very rich space to be in because <laughs> there were a, we're a long ways from hitting all those two mile targets right now well guys that is a great way to cap it thank you so much for tuning in and don't forget to check out nobsbc.com to read more and learn more on this topic as well as the other great resources that burger bullets has including their twist rate calculator their ballistics calculator and obviously the great bullets and other products that they have there available to check out don't forget, you can contact us directly to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And if you're enjoying the show, we would love to have you hit subscribe to receive future episodes and also leave us a review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this. Talk with you soon.